we are going to be hopping into Romans 13 today, where we're going to be finishing up this chapter. Let's start off by talking about conclusions. Generally, when things come to a close or when things wrap up in life, what, what happens? As the end draws near, how do we tend to respond? <laughs> Some of it is, finally, that's right, that's right. Some, it, it could be, as, as what you're saying, maybe the sense of, oh, release, it's finally here. Think of final exams. If you have a test that's coming, and the finals, they now are imminent. Well, how do we respond? Lincoln, how do we respond when finals are in the morning? He rests. This is somebody who has studied already. That's right. We, we get laser focused. When the finals come, we, we pull out our cheat sheets, our cards, and we're studying and we're walking to class, going back over the periodic table or whatever it might be that we're taking the exam on. When the homecoming dance is about to come and your, your date is about to show up and pick you up, what, what are you doing? You're putting on the last bit of foundation, I assume curling hair or something like that, but even, even the guys, what do you do? You go and you put the little bit of coverall over uh, the little acne that might be showing through. You, it's now time to get ready. When, how many here have been through a wedding of some kind that you've had to prepare for, and you've got 15 minutes before you're supposed to walk down the aisle, but the bouquets still aren't ready, right? And so you're rushing to get everything done because the end is imminent. The, the wedding is ready to arrive. Here's one. What about when the parents are about to get back from date night when the kids have been left alone? This is a time where we know they normally get back about 8.30, so we need to rush and hide and cover up any evidence of disobedience or arguing and fighting. We need to make it pristine before they get back. Otherwise, they're going to have a babysitter next time for us. When the end approaches, we become more focused. We become more vigilant. So let me ask a question this way. Understanding that, what does the life of a believer look like? The life of a believer who is about to stand before their God and Savior. As you approach the end, and you're on the threshold of being able to see the face of your Savior, what does that believer's life look like? And I would ask, with, with a show of hands, how many here have seen and been through an experience where someone close to you, a faithful believer, has known that they're approaching the time where they will see the face of Christ. Yeah, that's right. We know what that looks like. And, and it's, it's the way we respond when we know the end is near, whatever that end is that, that we're approaching, we become ever more vigilant with it. I want us to, we're going to start today in the middle of our passage um, if you would actually open up to Romans 13, I want to read 
I want to read starting in verse 11. So Romans chapter 13. And do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Knowing the time. Time, this is not chronos, right? There, there is a word that just means time, calendar or watch time. This is not um, chronos time, but rather this is a time that would mean a period with an emphasis that is more on this era or epic or this season of life. And that is the time that is being used here. So what we have here is we know the time, this era, this season of life, this period. This is the time that he's referring to. And this is the hour for you to awaken from sleep. This season, this time, this period, this is where we know that salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. We are closer to this season of salvation than when we first came to Christ. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. MacArthur, he has a great explanation to help us understand what, he, um, what Paul is saying here. He says, these phrases that we just read through, that it's already the hour, now salvation is nearer, the night is almost gone, the day is at hand, each one of these all express urgency. Each one of these phrases that we just read through. Time is limited. Opportunity is brief. He says, the time to heed and obey is now. He says there is no time for apathy, complacency, or indifference. This is the heart that Paul is talking about, starting in verse 11 and verse 13. And we know the time. It says knowing the time. And what is it that we know? Well, this is a call for us to recognize and know that Christ... And his return is imminent. Christ's return is close. We know this. This is something that we cognitively understand. And continuing, verse 11, it says, It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Think of these two lines as illustrations or images that he's, that he's actually presenting um, to us. And Paul is referring to the dawn of a day. Both of these have to do with a new day that is star- starting. And what he's saying is he's saying, awake, wake up. The sun is on the verge of rising. We're about to have light here. He's saying, awake, waken, waken up. Because 
A new day. The day is at hand. The day is getting ready to start. And because it's getting ready to start, wake up, get up, get out of bed. Paul says you cannot afford to be the sluggard who sleeps in. The sun is rising, the day is arising, the new day is about to be here, so you need to wake up. This is not the type, the type of life that we live in now where we have lights, where we can stay, stay up late into the night um, or get up early when it's dark. Um, the period at this time, predominantly for everyone, for everyone in society, it started when the sun rose. We now have light to be able to live and work and do what we need to do. And so what Paul is saying is the light is about to, oh, to come. The day's getting ready to start. Now is the time to wake up. Now, what is this new day, this dawning that he's referring to? And the middle illustration of those three lines, it tells us what this new day is. He says, for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's using the day of the Lord to be described as the sunrise and the new day that begins. And to help us understand about this a little bit, we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament has ample um, reference to the day of the Lord. And what we find, if you were to put together the day of the Lord, one theme comes again and again, or two themes come again and again on the day of the Lord, that there will be judgment of the wicked. God's enemies will be judged and overthrown, and there will be blessing for God's people. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment, and it's a day of blessing. And I'm just going to go through a few of these, and you can jot these references down and go back and read. But um, Jeremiah 30, verse 8, <clears throat> and it will be in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and will tear off your bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. God's people will be freed. In Joel chapter 2, verses 31 and 32, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. You have Obadiah. Obadiah in verse 15, it says, For the day of Yahweh draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. The way the nations have um, poured out uh, their unrighteousness, that is going to be poured back out upon them in the form of the wrath and the judgment of God. You also have in Joel chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, and this is great. And it will be in that day, in the day of the Lord, it will be in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine. 
And the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and the spring will go out from the, from the house of Yahweh to water the valley of Shittim. And Egypt will become desolate, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. In those lands, they have shed innocent blood, both the blessing and the wrath and the judgment. But Judah will be inhabited forever. In Jerusalem from generation to generation, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. Indeed, Yahweh dwells in Zion, the day of the Lord. But New Testament, uh, out of many references, we'll just look at a few, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you have verses 6 through 8, it mentions the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord where he comes. And uh, same verse in verse 8, it says, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6, I'll read this to you. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until what? The day of Christ Jesus. Which Think about this. We will be perfected up until the time when Christ comes. It's something that God is going to continue to work within us. Ultimately, that will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And then in Romans, Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God's judgment on the day of the Lord. And we could go on and on and have, have a study just on this. But we want to look at these, tie them all together, and understand the day of the Lord is coming. It's a theme throughout Scripture. The day of the Lord will bring judgment, and the day of the Lord will bring blessing. Will bring blessing to his people. And when will this day come? We know this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, how? Like what? Like a thief in the night. <laughs> I don't understand this. <laughs> the emotion. I understand this. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of Christ's return is coming. Verse 11. And do this knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. 
The day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. How much closer are we to the dawning of the day than the 2,000-some-odd years ago when Paul wrote these words? We must understand, and this is the main point. This is at the top of your, your handout here. We must live our life with urgency and purpose because the day of our Lord's return is drawing near. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. So this passage that we're looking at today, it has three imperatives, three commands that we are given. And each one of those three commands, each of those imperatives show us how we must live our life with urgency and purpose. So our outline today, we're going to be looking at three, and if you think of it this way, life-altering, non-negotiables that you must urgently implement into your life as you live in light of Christ's return. That the first imperative, we are to owe love. Second, put on Christ. And third, neglect the flesh. Let's pray and dive into our passage. Our God and Father, we pray that you would just open the eyes of our hearts to be able to see and understand the truths in this passage, and we pray that you would make us more perfect and complete through what we hear and read today. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. And I can tell this is coming. Wendell, can you grab me a glass of water? I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to start reading in verse 8. So starting in verse 8 of Romans 13, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Thank you. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual and promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. So here, as we go through the first life-altering non-negotiable that we must urgently implement to live in light of Christ's return is, verse 8, owe nothing to anyone. Now, this is going to, we're going to understand and unpack this, but what he is saying is that we are to owe love. We are to owe love. And when, when he says, owe nothing to anyone, this is not a, a prohibition against any type of lending and borrowing of money. And MacArthur actually points out that the Old Testament is full of guidelines on how to and also how to not lend and borrow money. Um, we have um, that laws, laws in the Old Testament are even implemented saying you can't prohibit someone from borrowing money from you. And in in Deuteronomy 15, where you have um, the year of Jubilee, where everyone's debts are are about to be forgiven, you can't withhold lending of money just because we know Jubilee's around the corner. So um, we also find what Christ taught in Matthew 5, where he said, do not turn away from him who wants to borrow money from you. So the key to understanding that this right here, when it says owe nothing to any um, owe nothing to anyone, that what he is actually going to be saying in this is when you have debts, you must pay back the debts that are owed. You cannot live your life indebted with no intention of paying these back. But um, if you were if you were to apply this into your life, if you owe something, you're going to pay it back. This is an obligation. You're going to settle your obligation. Your debt, you need to discharge it. But Paul's purpose is not to give a half of a sentence um, explanation on financial stewardship. Paul's purpose here is actually to talk about the one debt that we are to owe. So he's saying, owe nothing to anyone except... His purpose is to say there is one obligation that you cannot obtain or lien release on. There's one obligation that you cannot pay back. You cannot discharge yourself from this one debt. The one debt that you cannot pay back is to love one another. You have a debt you cannot repay. You have a debt you cannot get out from underneath of, and that is to love each other. This is your debt. So love, as good Calvarites, that's what we are, we know what love is. It's to give what you have, and we can say it with me if you'd like, that another person needs because God wants you to regardless of how I feel about it. To give what I have that another person needs because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel about it, this is love, and this is what we are indebted to and cannot escape from. We cannot get out from underneath this obligation that is owed it's owe, owe nothing 
This is an imperative. This is a command. You are told, owe nothing. And so therefore, the accept, which doesn't have that verb built into it, it's understood that that same imperative of owing is going to be attached to the prohibition. So we're, or, or I'm sorry, except that it's um, going to be attached to the exception. The exception is love one another. Therefore, the O is understood to be that command, that imperative. You must love one another and you must owe that love to one another. Just as we are in, told do not owe anything to others the same the same um, weight would be carried over you must love one another you owe them that it's an imperative you can't get out from underneath now notice in here where it says to love one another that this is going to be speaking specifically to believers the debt that you owe is to one another within the body of christ and, of course, we know, both from what we had read um, previously in, in uh, Romans chapter 12 and 13, we know that love is also extended to those who are enemies, to those who are outside the church. In Matthew 5 and verse 44, uh, we have Christ's command where he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right? So we do love those that are outside the church, but very specifically, because he's saying love one another, when we think about this love that we owe, the, the love is owed to one another, those who are within the body of Christ. There is a special love that you will have for those that are within the body. And th this word right here, it's agapeo. And so this is the same, this love, it's the same love that is used in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 to reference the love that a husband would have for the wife. And Steve Lawson, he says that this, this word, agapeo, this love, it actually differs from the brotherly love of phileo, but says rather it is a deep and intimate and rich love. So you must owe the debt of deep, intimate, and rich love to one another. The two reasons that we're going to look at here, why you can't discharge yourself from this debt. Since we must and are commanded to owe this love, um, we're going to look at why we can't get out from underneath that. Why is it that is, it is a command to owe this love? Well, first, it's going to be that love is in your innate nature as a believer. Love is innate to you as a believer. If we wanted to look at love and the believer, I know we could all share different passages where we can go and look to, but 1 John 4 is a great place to go to, and we're all probably very familiar with this. But 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. 
And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love, what does verse 8 tell us? The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so you can follow John's flow that he gives. He says, let us love one another. Why do we love one another? Because love is from God. Now, because love is from God, everyone who loves has been born of God, and everyone who loves knows God, and if you don't love, you don't know God. Why? Well, because God is love. If you know him, you will love. If you do not love, you do not know him. In John 13, Christ says, in verse 35, he says, by this you will know Or, I'm sorry, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is innate to you as a believer. Why is it innate? Why is it the evidence of our salvation? Why is it that if we know God, we also, by necessity, have love? Well, Romans 5, verse 5 tells us, That the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Love is something that must be innate within us because God himself taught us love, poured love into our own hearts at the time of our salvation. And finally, if we look at um, 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Now concerning love of the brothers, this is the love we're talking about, the love you have for the, the brothers within the church. He says, You have no need for anyone to write to you. I don't need to instruct you and tell you that you need to be loving. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You cannot discharge yourself from the debt of love. It is innate within the heart and the life of the believer. But also, we can't discharge ourselves from the debt of love because love is the fulfillment of our worship. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you look at verse 8, says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this, this is neat. And really, what he's doing, is Paul is building up to what Jesus taught as the greatest two commandments. In, in Mark chapter 12, and this is a passage again that we're, we're very familiar with, but Mark chapter 12, starting verse 28, it says, and when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that, recognized that he had answered them well and had asked him, you know, what commandment is the first, foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no commandment greater than these. These two, loving God as well as loving man, there is no greater commandment than these. You cannot discharge this debt of love because to do so would entail discharging the very practice of our faith. We must owe one another love. So rather, loving your neighbor and thereby loving one another, this is the way that the law of God is fulfilled. He says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So love, and this is something that helps shape our understanding of what we are doing when we love. Love is not a guiding principle for the law. Love is not this principle that if we pursue love, then we will also be going in the same direction as the law of God. If you look at, and this will get a little bit of grammar on this, but this, the, looking at the way the verb is set up, has fulfilled, it is perfect, active, and we'll break down some of these, indicative, third person, singular. Now let's look at a couple of these. If it is perfect, this is something that has been done in the past that once for all, the effects continue into the future. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He who loves perfectly, one who truly does love, the law has been fulfilled. And as we look at this, and, and this, is, this is going to help us understand it, but as we look at this, one of the commentators explained it this way, that central to the new covenant law is love for one another. And so he says, when therefore believers love others as they should, when we are actually loving the way that we should be loving, the law is fulfilled. They bring about to expression the actual life circumstances that the law was aiming at all along. So understand what he's saying. As we are truly loving one another, we will be bringing out the very things that the law would be calling us to do. And we're going to look at some examples here that Paul gives. He says, we must emphasize, however, that such complete and consistent loving of others, it remains an impossibility, even for the spirit-filled Christian. We will never, short of glory, truly love the other as we should. This means that it would be premature to claim that love replaces the law. We don't say, oh, well, I'm just going to love and I'm going to push the law aside. Because we cannot, here on earth, 
love the way that we should. So, as if the only commandment that we ever needed was to worry about the commandment of love, we, we can't say the only thing I have to do is love and neglect everything else. We can't do that because we cannot love perfectly. For as long as love remains incomplete, we may very well require other commandments both to chastise and to guide us. So let's, let's think of it this way. We have the law. We have the law that will chastise and it will compel us and guide us to do the very actions that love should motivate us to. And we have some examples in verse 9. There's five actual life circumstances that he gives. And each one of these are examples where love would fulfill the law. Four of these are from the Ten Commandments, and then we also have one that is from Leviticus. So, um, as we read through, starting in verse 9, I want you to notice that if you are giving other people what you have that they need because God wants you to, regardless of how you feel about it, if you are doing that, then all five of these will be fulfilled without having to try to obey. If you are loving perfectly, these laws are perfectly fulfilled. So let's look in verse 9, and we'll start working our way through this. For this, you shall not commit adultery. Committing adultery, this is self-serving. Disregard for the other person's purity. Disregard for their standing before the Lord. It's disregard for your covenant with your spouse. If you love your spouse and you love the other person, you will not commit adultery. Love would fulfill this command. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Love does not take the other person's life And love does not take the other person's property. Rather, what will love do? Ephesians 4.28 would say that with love we will work so that we may have something good to give to those that are in need. We would give what we have that another person needs because God wants me to regardless of how I feel about it. We don't steal and we definitely don't take their life. So what about the heart actions, because each of these first three, these are you know, things that you do outwardly. So even laws that may not manifest themselves in an outward action are still fulfilled by the law. He says, you shall not covet. So this is the opposite of love. This is desiring what another person has, and you want it for yourself. It's the opposite of what love is. It is devoid of thanksgiving. Coveting is begrudging. It is a desire that is self-fulfilling, built out of your flesh. And James would actually indicate that this lusting, this desiring, what you do not have, it leads to a multitude of sins, each of which are contrary to loving one another. In James 4, and this again, a passage that is familiar to us, verses 1 and 2, it says, What is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you? 
is not the source, your pleasure, that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Fight and quarrel. Even though these other two laws as well in here aren't named, love fulfills honoring your parents. Love fulfills not bearing false witness. But Paul's purpose in this passage is not to go and enumerate each one of the laws in the Old Testament that love fulfills. What Paul is looking to show is that love fulfills the law. And then going back, and this helps explain what what I was talking about earlier from the passage that I was quoting uh, from the commentator says, love will bring about the expression in actual life circumstance what the law is aiming at. If you are perfectly loving, the law will be fulfilled. Love fulfills the law. And then, in case there's other explanations that Paul thinks someone may be asking about, verse um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, um, this is a positive example of when love is lived out perfectly, any other law is going to be wrapped up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is there another law that you're thinking of? that I didn't mention in this short list? Well, let me just tie a bow around them all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doing this perfectly will fulfill the law. Law, Love does not abolish the law. Love doesn't just direct the law's direction and say, oh, I should do this because it is loving. Loving your neighbor will fulfill the law. Think of it this way. What number times zero equals zero? Does two times zero equal zero? What about 22? Or 16,782? Yes. But the answer, all real numbers times zero is zero. But the fact that all real numbers are, it's, equal, it's also true that each individual number also times zero equals zero. That same kind of concept can be applied here. If you are loving your neighbor as yourself, all of the law is summed up in that. And if you want to pick any individual law, you can say that law is also summed up in love. And this law is summed up in love. And this, so Origen, who he was born in um, about 185 AD, so he is um, early church father. Listen to what he says. He says, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. This is what we do. We are continually trying to pay our debt of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a debt we try to make payments on. We keep making payments. We continually make payments. We just can't discharge it. 
we love one another. And in so doing, we are fulfilling the law of God. So how does this apply directly to our lives here at Calvary today? I would say let's look at Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies to God as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then in verse 9, where you continue of um, chapter, um, chapter 12, it's live the life of love unhypocritical. We don't get down on the altar and then stand up and get off of the altar of God. We present ourselves as sacrifices to God. We stay on the altar, and having been saved by grace through faith, we present ourselves to God by loving others as we should. We love them and thus fulfill the law. We present ourselves to, as sacrifices to God by loving one another. And as we've walked through, we've landed back at verse 11 of chapter 13 again. It says, And do this knowing the time. When he says, And do this, he has just finished speaking about love and loving your neighbor, and living the life of love that fulfills the law. But what most people understand is that this is not just referring to the love, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 12 and everything that he has spoken about, about renewing your mind and serving with your spiritual gifts within the body and having this love unhypocritical and overcoming evil with good and submitting to the government and loving one another, all of these things that we have discussed about, all of these things that we have shown are ways that we live our lives of sacrifices to God. Do all of these things knowing that the time is already here. The hour for you to awaken from sleep is here. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. So we submit our bodies as sacrifices to God because we know the day of the Lord is coming. Therefore, we owe love and we live that life of love. But number two, we put on Christ. Put on Christ is the second life-altering, non-negotiable, that we must urgently implement to live in light of Christ's return. He says, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The day of the Lord is dawning. He is at hand. Therefore, the only response that we can have is to live today as though we are already walking in the light of that day. 
So if you understand what he has just said, let us lay aside the deeds of the darkness. The light is imminent. Lay aside those deeds that are darkness. And instead, put on the armor of the light that is imminent. There are deeds done in the secret of darkness, deeds that defile the mouth to even discuss. We lay these aside, these deeds of darkness. We put on the armor of light. And and to help understand putting on the armor of light, think of a battle. Now, I'm going to do this imagery because this is more um, in line with what we do today. But imagine a firefighter. When he's sleeping in his pajamas and he's curled up in the firehouse and the fire alarm sounds, what does he do? Does he sprint down in his fuzzy slippers and hop in the truck and run off to the fire? No. He casts off the attire that is night attire that he's sleeping in and he throws on the equipment for battling the fire. His day has come. He casts off those of the darkness of the night and puts on the equipment for the battle against the fire that is imminent, that he is headed towards. And this is the, this is the imagery that Paul is using here. You're casting off those deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light for the day that is dawning. The day has come. The morning has come. The battle is at hand. We cast off that which is improper. We cast off those things that we had worn previously. We put on the tools and the attire for the day that is imminent. The light is coming, so the tools and the clothing of the day are tools and clothing of night. It's the armor of light. We put it on. We cast off that which is of darkness And we put on what we need for the day of the Lord. It says in verse 13, he explains even more. Let us walk properly as in the day. So even though the day of the Lord is not here, it is so imminent, we live today as though the day has arrived. That means not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. 1 Peter 4 verse 3 tells us, the time has already, For the time past is already sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Your past time that you had prior to your salvation, prior to today, that is enough time spent in the deeds of darkness. If they remain, cast them off. You can look. The light is coming. If you look into the darkness, the light is ready to break through. This is the day of the Lord That is imminent. We cannot remain in our lives clinging to and holding to the vestiges of sin that ruled prior to our our salvation. We must cast them off. How 
inappropriate for Christ to return and us to be clothed in the deeds of darkness. The day of the Lord is imminent. We must cast them off, prepare for that day, put on the armor that he expects us to be wearing on that day. We have spent enough time pursuing our own fleshly desires. Now is the time to get ready for his day. We put on the proper attire, and that is verse 14. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, for all, of, um, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We are clothed with Christ. In Romans 5 and 6, it talks about how we have been severed from the old man. We now have been united with the new and the better Adam. We are united to Christ. He is our identity. It only makes sense to clothe us, to clothe ourselves with him. We are clothed with him. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, walking in the deeds of righteousness, in obedience to God's word, and in obedience to Christ, is clothing ourselves with Christ. Clothe yourselves with him. In verse 11 in Romans 6, starting there, it says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, what do we do? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting yourselves as members or instruments to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. We don't give ourselves to unrighteousness, but instead we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments to righteousness. The day is dawning. Present yourselves to Christ and say, my body is for you to use in righteousness. My God, use me for righteousness. No longer present yourselves as instruments to unrighteousness. And this is how, the third point, is how we can clothe ourselves in Christ. He says, ultimately, number three, is neglect the flesh. And let me unpack this for you. Where he says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. The provision here, this is thoughtful planning to meet a human need. To give provision is to be concerned about or make provisions for something. What he is telling us to do is make no provisions for the flesh. 
We are to starve the flesh. We are to neglect the flesh. And this is a horrible image, but this is in line with what Paul is saying. So picture this imagery. The courts would convict and, and throw someone in prison for the death of a child due to abandoning or neglecting it so it starved. But this same abandonment is the way we are to treat our flesh. We are to abandon and neglect our flesh, giving it no provisions. We don't feed it. We don't care for it. We don't hide it away and pull it out for seasons. We neglect it and starve it. We abandon it. We neglect our flesh. How do we do this? We feed deeply on God's word and we leave the deeds of the flesh to live an emaciated, withered life. We feed deeply on God's word because it alone is sufficient. It alone is able to teach and correct and train us in righteousness. It alone is able to equip us for the battle of the day. We must feast on the word of God. We must neglect the flesh. We must put on Christ. We must love one another. And we must be living our Christian life with urgency and purpose because the day of our Lord's return is imminent. In this passage, three life-altering non-negotiables that we must implement. We must love one another. We must put on Christ, putting off the deeds of the flesh. And we must neglect and starve the flesh. Let us pray. Our God and Father, oh, I confess how often I feed the flesh and neglect putting on Christ. Father, we pray that you would, through your word, convict myself, convict each one here, open our eyes to the ways that we protect and nourish our flesh, to the neglect of putting on Christ. We pray that you would make this church a holy church by making each one of us individually holy people. Father, may you empower us and convict us through your spirit to put on Christ and live for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.